0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: So many times we see this as an employee versus employee thing. This is literally us versus companies, not colleagues against colleagues. If you start talking with a colleague and you find out that they're paid more than you or they're paid less than you, that is no one's fault but the companies.
2: Your life, it's going to change. Jobs, kids, houses, are you financially ready to enjoy the ride? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today because you've got a lot to look forward to. So get excited, but be prepared. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. So quick question for all of you. Do you know how much your boss earns? What about the new hire who just took over your old job or the coworker sitting right next to you? For many of us, the answer is probably no or even no way. Just 17% of employees at private companies say that their company's salary information is public 41% say their managers actively discourage them from talking about their wages. And an additional quarter of people say their companies prohibit them from discussing pay. By the way, I do not think that's legal. But what is to be done when you wanna understand whether or not you have pay parity with your colleagues or if you're curious that you might Be being paid less than a man for the same job. Without pay transparency, it can feel like you are stumbling around in the dark. Should you be asking for a raise? Should you be looking for a new job? We know that on average, a third of workers suspect that they are not being paid fairly when compared to their coworkers. And I know, I don't have to tell you, that that number is way too high. Look, In years past, it was considered taboo to talk about money with friends and family. And while some people may still feel that way, that societal taboo against talking about pay, it is changing so fast. 79% of workers say they want more pay transparency from their companies. Nearly half of all states now have what's known as a salary history ban, which means a prospective employer cannot ask what you are currently making, and if they can't base your offer on what you're earning now, the chances of you getting a more substantial salary bump, they're just much greater. Also, just in the last year, states like Connecticut, Nevada, Rhode Island, Colorado, they have all passed laws that require employers to offer a pay range for positions during the hiring process. So you'll know what kind of offer will be on the table before you spend too many months interviewing. Look, it's clear. It is more clear every single day that people want open, honest discussions about salary because we all want to earn the most we possibly can. Fortunately, simply just talking is often the first step toward breaking down barriers, especially for women. That's why this podcast exists. And our guest today is one woman who is leading the conversation around Pay Transparency and Pay Equity, and she's doing it one viral video at a time. Hannah Williams is a social media influencer and the creator of Salary Transparency Street. It is an online video series, maybe you've seen it, where she approaches strangers on the street and asks them two simple questions. What do you do and how much do you make? Hannah, welcome. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you for what you do, really. I mean, I wanna start with those videos. They get hundreds of thousands, sometimes even millions of views on TikTok and Instagram. You travel to cities around the country, you ask people how much they make, you post the conversations. How did this get started? It's a great question
1: and unfortunately i i've tried so many times this pitch to get it under like three minutes but it's really like a long-winded accumulation of like a lot of experiences i had where ultimately i just was fed up with the injustice of like secrecy and such and i experienced it in my own career i had like tell me a
2: story yeah
1: yeah <laughs> So when I graduated college, I graduated in 2019. So I've only been working like three years, really not a long time. But in those three years, I've job hopped a lot. So I went from 40 k to 115 k over the course of five jobs in like two and a half years. And the thing is, is I think a lot of people focus on that and they think that I was hopping for money but really every single job hop I did was because I was unhappy in like the job that I was at. It wasn't like what I expected, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so the idea of sitting back and like hating my job and not wanting to leave because, you know, I was only there for two months or so, I couldn't stand being unhappy in my career. So I was like, I just have to leave. And every time I left, I did so many interviews with recruiters and I went through this whole brand new hiring process like every few months. And every time I did, the recruiter would always ask me, like, what's your salary range? You know, like, what are your requirements? And at the time, I didn't really think, well, they should just offer it. You know, it should be in the description. I was thinking like, okay, how do I get the number that doesn't discount myself the best I can. But all the research that I did was like crowdfunded salaries that weren't contextual or comparable to me. So like the internet wasn't that helpful. You know, I always kind of had to take it with a grain of salt. So I started just every time I did a job interview and they asked me what my requirement was, I would add like 10 to 20K to what I was making previously because I was like, I'd be happy with that. You know, if I left and I made 10 to 20K more, I'd be super happy with that. I went through that process for about like two years and I got to my fourth job where I was making 90K and like I was 23 or 24 at the time making 90K. I thought I had hit the jackpot. I thought I was rich. (laughs) I was so happy. Yeah, I was so happy with what I was making. And then this was the midst of the great resignation, COVID. And I got really burnt out at the job because it was kind of sold to me differently in the interview process than what it ended up being. And I was essentially supporting like five different roles for a government contract. And I got really burnt out, really depressed, for lack of a better word. But I knew that I was bringing value to the clients. So I started asking myself, am I making what I should be making, you know, am I am I making enough versus the value that I'm bringing them and like my life that I'm giving them. And so I started looking up like, you know, what's a living wage in my area? And like, what does a senior analyst make? And I realized I was underpaid by like 15 to 20k, which was insane to me because I thought that I, you know, I was like, I'm so grateful that I make 90K. Like I felt lucky. And that really changed this perspective that I had really that like we should be grateful for our employers versus holding them accountable. And like that flip was everything. And I quit that job and I left for another job where they offered me 115K. And that was the first time I tried negotiating my salary out of Five jobs I had, I only tried negotiating one because I didn't even know you could do that. And I asked the recruiter what the budget was when she asked me for my requirement. And she told me like, oh, you know, we're thinking 115, 120. And I was like, I was going to offer myself for 105, 110. So I was like, I already would have took a pay cut, you know, versus what they could have offered me. So long story short, I started talking about all these experiences on my personal TikTok. So, a lot of people know me from Salary Transparent Street, but I actually have a personal TikTok that went viral a couple of times too, because I was talking about what I made in each of my roles because I realized I had such little information to go off of to compare myself to other women, like young women in data analytics, that my numbers could help. And sure enough, they did. Like, I got so much positive feedback from people telling me, like, this is so helpful. Like, thank you for sharing this. And that sparked this idea that I was like, this is BS, for lack of a better word, like the process that we're going through and like that we accept it. And we need to do something to hold our employers accountable. But like, my problem was, I can't ask, you know, the CEO of Apple to be like, can you, you know, just start putting the salary range in jobs? You know, can you just do that? Because it's unfair. They weren't going to listen to that. So Really, I was inspired by the Great Resignation and the idea that there's power in numbers and that if we all kind of see an injustice and start asking for what we deserve and what we're worth in numbers, like as a powerhouse, we can affect change. And so I knew that I had to get people on board and I had to get information out there. So I just, I don't know, I put two and two together and I was like, I'm going to go on the street and I'm going to ask people what they do and how much they make. I coerced my fiance into coming with me and filming me (laughs) and the rest is history.
2: (laughs) And quite a history, by the way. And let me just say, like, I think that you are, you know, Maybe it's your background in data Mm. that made you dig for the data and try to figure out really what you should be paid. Yeah. And that, I think, is a lesson for all of us, right? There is data out there. There's not enough data. Yeah. But there is data out there, and we all need to go in search of it. But since you launched this show with your fiance, just since April, you have more than a million followers. Mm -hmm. You've got 240 million total views across your social platform. Why do you think this resonates so much? I mean, you said it's just two questions. What do you do? How much do you make? Why do you think this is so resonant? Really, the difference with
1: our videos is that we're putting this to the forefront of what we're watching and the information that we're consuming. And I feel like the idea of talking about our salaries was not only taboo, but passive. You know, people are not starting those conversations with each other, especially not with their colleagues. They're just kind of assuming in the background. And that assumption, really spirals into something else when you don't have the information. Like assuming that you're underpaid is going to have negative effects on your productivity and your morale at work and not knowing that information is just so toxic. And so I just feel like now we're talking about it and showing that you can have these conversations with inherently strangers. Like, I don't know any of these people and I'm asking them what they do and how much they make. And I feel like by doing that, I'm providing a level of security and comfort for other people to start having these conversations with their colleagues and with their family and their friends. Because it's so funny that actually our show is a starting talking point now. I think that colleagues are bringing it up and being like, hey, do you watch Salary Transparency? And that is an invitation to this broader conversation that they're gonna have together to figure out you know, whether or not they're underpaid. So really, I just think we're removing this veil of taboo and showing that these conversations are not only valuable and so informational, they can also be comfortable and there's ways to go about having them. So
2: who do you think in the landscape of people and salaries, we know, we've got a big salary gap by gender. We know there is a big racial salary gap. We know that members of the LGBTQ plus community face a wage gap. Who do you think benefits most from these conversations?
1: And I mean, another marginalized group that I've added to the long growing list is workers with disabilities also face these issues. Really, I'm hoping to specifically lift up marginalized groups. I mean, what's funny to me is actually it's evidence of kind of the privilege that some people have that it seems a lot of white men seem to have the largest issue with our videos. They're the ones who kind of leave a lot of negative comments. And it's interesting to me because I feel like they're the ones that don't really need help in this situation. They're the ones that benefit the utmost from pay secrecy. You know, I just saw an article the other day from CNBC or something that said, you know, if you think you're underpaid, go ask the tallest, whitest man in your office how much they make. And it's true, like they don't face as many of the biases and really, The issue with pay secrecy is that You leave so much window open for these opportunities to marginalize people based on inherent biases or unconscious biases that people have because you're leaving the opportunity for pay up to a lot of variables that are dependent on people. You're leaving it up to the hiring manager who will decide whether or not that person is worth a certain amount, and that is also determined based on how they negotiate. There are studies out there that I can't name, which I should also probably have have cited in my head, but there are studies that have been done that are reputable that show that women who try to negotiate for the exact same amount as a man in a salary negotiation process are going to be deemed as greedy, you know, demanding or selfish instead of a man who is seen as a go getter. And that is way worse for women of color and people of color in general and people with disabilities and the LGBTQ community. Like, really my call here is that i experienced it in a way that was so subliminal and quiet that put me back about 20k and if that happened to me i can only imagine what black women face what workers with disabilities face it like that's what kills me and really like drives me to do this because the only people who benefit from pay secrecy are employers who get away with underpaying their employees who they should be valuing
2: I agree with you that those are the beneficiaries, but why do you think you're getting this blowback from from men, in particular white men? I mean, what are they saying and how are you responding?
1: They basically will say a mix of the gender pay gap doesn't exist, you know, which is such a tired point at this, at this point, they'll say the gender pay gap doesn't exist. They'll say that this is a non issue. They'll say that, well, if companies will say, you know, what their range is, then they're not going to be able to compete. You know, it's going to be a negative for small businesses, they won't be able to compete with big businesses. And what's funny to me is that that's already the case. Small companies can't compete with big companies. That's already something we're seeing. So why is it an issue now? I feel like they try to To find a lot of excuses because once pay transparency becomes a thing, they won't be able to take advantage of the pay secrecy which exists. Like these biases that they benefit from are now going to be put out in the open, you know? So they won't be able to get away with getting paid 20, 30K more than their colleagues. They're going to be put back at the same scale. And so the people who really have the biggest issue with something that promotes equality are the people who benefited from the injustices that were occurring.
2: So most people, I'm just guessing here, but most people do not go around asking each other how much they make. And I'm sure, or at least (laughs) I'm guessing, that it wasn't easy in the beginning for you to ask that question of complete strangers. Mm. So how did you get there? Or how did you get over that feeling of maybe I shouldn't be asking this?
1: (laughs) You know, I think... Having a cause is a weirdly empowering thing. People wouldn't guess this, but I'm very introverted. I'm actually very shy. And so it was a lot of effort for me to get over that, to go ask people. And I probably would have stopped a long time ago if the videos hadn't gone viral, (laughs) honestly, just because I don't have a choice but to keep going now. So I just have to keep pushing out these videos and this information because it's so valuable. There's no way I can turn back on it. I proved that this is necessary. So really, that's what just keeps me going. But the first time I did, it was so scary. Thank God I had my fiance there for moral support. You know, He was my cameraman and I stood on a corner of like a really busy area in Georgetown in Washington, DC, which I guess I, you know, in, in retrospect, I went to Georgetown, so I feel like I probably chose a comfort area of mine, you know, a place that I feel comfortable. And I just started asking people. And I think that the reason I was successful with it and kept going was because I got great feedback. You would think that people would, you know, say no or be really rude. I had so many people say yes. I had so many people interested in what I was doing. And that lifts you up if you're shy and you're scared and it just gives you courage. So really the community that supports me gives me courage to do it all the time.
2: <laughs> What's the best response that you received? What's your favorite? What have you learned?
1: Ooh, there's so many. I don't even have a favorite interaction anymore because I have so many. And as we get recognized now, people, when they see us and they recognize us, they tell me their stories. They tell me why they're excited about what we're doing because they're personally impacted by it. They'll tell me their stories where they were underpaid or because of our page. They Oh, this is my number one story then. Here we go. I was in Target I was getting like late night things, toiletries and stuff, you know, like mini travel carry-ons for a trip. We were going to California, which was a huge trip. So we were really excited. I was with my fiance. I didn't want to get recognized because I looked terrible. So I had like a mask on, you know, I was laying low. And this girl comes up to me, like straight up to me, and she's like, are you on TikTok? Like, are you that salary girl? And I was like, ah, oh, shoot, like the mask didn't work. You know, so I take off the mask. I'm like, yeah, that's me. And she's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't want to bother you, but I'm starting my new job tomorrow because of you. I left my old job and I'm making, I forget the number, but it was like 20K more or something. And she's like, I'm starting my new job tomorrow and I'm just like so happy to meet you and like, thank you for what you do. And then she like ran away and I just like, the euphoria you feel when you hear that is just that we have actual impact that we help people is everything that's probably yeah my number one
2: (laughs) that's a great one that's exactly what it's all about i want to talk about how we can bring some of this into our own lives and into our own conversations and channel a little bit of hannah as we go through our daily life but before we do that let me just acknowledge life comes at us really fast. There could be wedding bells on the horizon, as there are for you. There could be promotions around the corner or even grandchildren on the way. If you're listening and you're thinking maybe you're not financially prepared for everything that life has in store, you need a plan. With a plan, you can be ready. So visit plan hermoney slash her money to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You'll work with an expert to review your current situation, to develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace life's biggest moments. Again, that's planefe.com slash hermoney. Schedule your free appointment with an advisor today. I'm talking with Hannah Williams. She is the creator of Salary Transparent Street, which you have seen all over TikTok. So if we want to do a little bit of this in our own lives, I mean, do we just go to our colleagues and say, hey, meet me in the restroom. I want to know how much you're making. How do we do this?
1: Yeah, it's definitely difficult to navigate. And there's no one answer for everyone. I think that where this starts is realizing, like taking account of where you are figure out what you've signed because your company may have had you sign an NDA that forbids you from talking about your pay, which funny enough, those are illegal unless you work you know, for the government and such. Like there's certain cases where that doesn't apply, but in most private companies, it's illegal to sign one of those. So you need to understand first of all, whether or not you've signed that. So you're in the best place to start having these discussions and you're protected legally. Really what those plans say is that you can't talk with your colleagues, but there's usually a clause there that that companies can forbid you from talking about it on the clock, you know? So if you want to have these conversations with your colleagues, the best way to do it is realize what you've signed, realize what your company's policies are and how you have to get around that. But really try speaking with your colleagues outside of the office. Speak in an area where, you know, there's kind of a level playing field. You know, you're not looking over your back for your manager and just approach it from a situation. I think people... So many times we see this as an employee versus employee thing. This is literally us versus companies, not colleagues against colleagues. If you start talking with a colleague and you find out that they're paid more than you or they're paid less than you, that is no one's fault but the companies. The company is the one that accepts that. They're the ones that have you sign that paperwork. So you have to figure out What made the difference between our different pay? You know, do you have more experience than I do a couple years? Do you have a different certification, a different education? What's your background that causes that discrepancy? And working together to get to the root cause of like what those differences are. And if it seems like, you know, that doesn't make sense, like those don't line up, you have to work together to bring that to your management. You know, it's not something of us versus us. It's us versus them.
2: Do you think that in this particular job market, the Great Resignation followed by 11 million open jobs in the United States, people having trouble hiring, wages going up for the first time in a long time, that this has created more gaps, that people who've gotten hired in this tough hiring environment are getting paid more and other people should be looking at that and thinking, well, you know, I'm facing inflation as well. I should try to level up.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's insane. If you look at the cost of like the rise of inflation in the past 50 years and then the rise of CEO salaries in the past 50 years compared to the average national salary, it's it's barely budged. You know, people 30, 40 years ago are still making around the same average that we're making now. And so really, with inflation and cost of living going up, if you haven't increased your salary significantly within the past few years, you're probably losing money just because your rate isn't meeting inflation. So yeah, in a sense, it is creating more pay gaps. But The sad thing is, is I feel like we're going to find ways to bring that blame back to employees and saying like, oh, well, you know, you guys caused this gap. But if that gap exists, it's because companies could afford that gap and they just didn't level up. You know, they didn't on their own choose to bring their employees up. They let their employees fight for themselves, which is so wrong. Like literally the whole... Work culture we have going on now places the entire responsibility to be paid fairly on the employee instead of seeing it as a moral responsibility of companies to be doing that from the get go. You know, there's software out there that can tell them what they should be paying people. There's software out there that will tell them whether or not an offer is fair based on the market that exists. So companies that don't provide or have those services and then provide that full transparency, they're betting on employees to underpay themselves and they'll take advantage of it because it lowers their costs. So it is creating a gap. But once again, I feel like that's not the employee's fault. At the end of the day, we have to feed our families. We have to take care of our families and If companies are not putting their employees first, they have to start putting themselves first. And that's what that's going to look like.
2: We've got a lot of listeners I know to this podcast who either work for small companies or run small companies. Mm -hmm. Those tools that you're talking about, are they available for the small company landscape as well? Yeah. And, you
1: know, it's funny, I didn't know so much about this software that existed until I started STS. And, you know, now I've got a lot of these companies knocking on my door for brand partnerships. And I can name five off the top of my head that do this. Like they have this service and they integrate with your entire software that you have now that has your employee books, you know, your time management, your HR. It's there. Like it's not hard for this transparency to be implemented even for small businesses.
2: Yeah, I have to say we signed on with what's called a PEO. It's a professional employer organization, a company that offers HR and health benefits and 401ks and all of that kind of stuff. And they have this as well. So that's been really helpful. All right, Hannah, I have to ask. So you quit your last job as a senior data scientist to work on STS, Salary of Transparency Street full-time. It's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. <laughs> I could have the... a better name. <laughs> <laughs> How much money
1: do you make now? You know, the problem is, is it's really hard to address because I've only been doing it going on four months now. And I didn't make any money two months out of the past four months. Like they, they were zero revenue months but all my money is based on brand deals right now. So it's just kind of like what's coming in. I don't wanna jinx anything and nothing's been announced yet. Nothing's been signed officially yet, hopefully this week, but I should be signing something this week with a brand that is gonna, let me do the math. It's four times what I made annually as a senior data analyst, and it's for a six month partnership. So (laughs) I know I'm gonna be making We're going to close probably half a million in revenue within like six months of starting from brand deals alone. So I just like when people tell me like, oh, you shouldn't have quit your job. I'm like, no, I had to quit my job to build STS into what it is now to create these brand deals. And that was a risk I was willing to take.
2: Well, congratulations on that. I'm knocking on something wood for you so that nothing bad happens. You have built this massive following in such a short time. What's next? Where do you wanna take it?
1: Oh, you know, I guess I can say this. Our next step is we're not gonna stop You know, our regular videos. We're gonna still continue. Right now we're doing like a national tour. So we're trying to hit all the capital cities, all the states, really showing like the discrepancy of pay across different rural and urban areas around the country. But I'm very excited because we're going to be launching a college Transparent Street. So we're going to be like going to college campuses and speaking with students. And, you know, I think that pay transparency right now, if you're joining the workforce, it's so important to be like armed with these tools and this information because Pay transparency and like being paid fairly starts from the get-go, right? Like if you begin your career already underpaying yourself 20K, you're going to be held back by that and it's going to grow, you know, as you go in your career. So targeting college students who are just like right now going into the workforce and have all this power is major to me. And I'm really excited. I don't want to say what kind of interviews we're going to do, but they're going to be fun.
2: (laughs) I'm sure they're going to be fun. I'm sure we are all going to be watching. I just have to say you are delightful. This was really fun. Thank you for what you're doing. You're onto something so big. And thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me. All thanks to you.
2: Before we dive into our mailbag, let me just take a sec to remind everyone that her money is also supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union providing a wide array, wide array of financial products and services for its members. For example, if you are currently exploring the auto market, BCU offers financing and refinancing options as well as an exclusive auto buying service, which can help you save both time and money. You can learn more at bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle, of course, joins me now for our mailbag. I'm still smiling, by the way, from that (laughs) conversation. She's infectious.
0: Yeah, she's great. I love to hear her energy in a one-on-one conversation be exactly the same energy that we've all come to know and love watching her on TikTok.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And really well-informed and so passionate about doing the right thing, right? I got to say, I go through life and sometimes despite being an optimist, I just you know, there's a lot of bad news out there. There's a lot of, there's a lot to take in when you read the papers. And then you meet somebody like Hannah and you think, okay, the world's going to be fine. Like, I just think the world, you know, if we're leaving the world in her hands, the world is going to be fine.
0: Aw, what a lovely thing to say. I agree. And, And I also love how she's now like the poster child for going out on a limb and taking a risk in your career. You know, like she's been the person empowering people to talk about salary. And now she's the person who is living the personal dream of quitting that job and then finding something that's going to pay you four times more to do something you love.
2: Yeah. And building a brand. I mean, she and her fiance, who I think is involved in it now as well, I mean, they've launched a business, they've launched a brand. This has legs. Not all flyers that you take do, but I'm really happy for her and happy for us that this is moving the conversation forward in the way that it should be. It's so true.
0: I think about everybody that we've ever had on our podcast and all of our listeners, they're all part of the Her Money family. And the dialogue that we are having as part of this group of collective women nationwide is just growing by leaps and bounds in terms of the number of conversations
2: and the types of things that are being discussed. It's just amazing. Yeah. So that was fun. I know we've got questions. I want to make sure that we've got time to answer them. So let's dive in. Yeah. I picked a couple of career questions for the show, of
0: course. Great. Our first question today is from an anonymous listener. She writes... Hi, Jeanne and Catherine. I'm in a position I've never been in before, negotiating a salary for myself at a company that I co-founded. We have investors with a deep pockets who will be the majority stakeholders in the company, and they're fronting all our startup costs. But now we're in the 11th hour, and they're trying to cut corners on the salaries of everyone we hire, including mine. I understand that every corporate entity wants to get a bargain, but I've done so much work in good faith. I developed the business plan, I thought of the name of the company and the mission statement, and the salary I'm asking for is actually lower than what I was offered by another publicly traded company. My question is, are the rules of salary negotiation different when you're a co-founder with an equity stake? The company giving us the funding has millions. They could invest without batting an eye, but the salary that I'm asking for and the salary that they're offering are $100,000 apart, which is vast. Over the course of the last year, I've given them volumes of ideas and intellectual property that I developed myself, all of which I have in writing. This company not only has my fingerprints all over it, I'd say I developed 50% of the ideas for what this company would do. For context, the company that's funding us approached my business partner last year and asked the question, if we wanted to build a business that did X, Y, and Z, how would we do it, and could you help us with that? So, together, he and I built an incredible plan for this company that would do those things with the understanding that we would be fully funded. So, while the original idea wasn't ours, they basically came to us and said, we need cake, and then we gave them the entire shopping list and the cooking instructions and turned on the oven for them. I guess my biggest question is, If I don't take their low-ball salary offer, do I have to walk away from all this work I've put in? Is there a precedent for someone negotiating some kind of a one-time payout or an equity stake for all this kind of work? In other words, could I be paid or compensated as a co-founder but never take an active salaried role? I'm so confused as to what to do next and what I should ask for. I'd be very grateful for any advice.
2: My first thought is that you need a lawyer. My first thought is that you need a lawyer who specializes in startups and small business and these very sort of negotiations. And if you don't have one, you can reach out to me over email and I will give you mine because I happen to have a very good one at this point no, I don't think that you have to take their offer that is so low. This is a negotiation. And they, at this point, need you, I'm assuming, to execute this plan that you have put in place for them and to run it. If they could have done this themselves, they would have done it themselves. And so don't underestimate what they are counting on you to do in the months and the years that follow. I'm also concerned about their move to cut corners on all of the salaries of the people that you're trying to bring on board, because what they need to understand is that you are not going to be able to be successful on their behalf, if you aren't able to bring in the people that you need to support you to do that work. And in this hiring environment, those people are more expensive than they were before, not less expensive. They have more options than they had before, not fewer options. So I would look at bringing in a lawyer to negotiate this entire deal. There is no value to the equity until there is a liquidity event. So although you shouldn't discount the fact that you have some equity, unless this is already a publicly traded company where there is a value to the equity that you are being granted, you've got to put that in a corner and think of it as a nice to have, not a going to have, and make sure that you are being paid fairly for the work that you're doing right now. You should also understand what the end game is. I mean, what is the planned liquidity event down the road? Are you thinking that this is a company that they will buy all of? Are you thinking it's a company that you will sell with them? Those are all important things to understand. But there sounds to me, and Catherine, feel free to jump in here. It sounds to me like there are a lot of issues at play. I would take that offer that you were made by the publicly traded company and go back to them with it and say, look, I was just offered this, but you've got to do it making sure that you have buttoned up all of the intellectual property and other things that you've already given this company and make sure that you are compensated for those things as well. And your business partner should be doing the very, very same thing. So let's take a step back. Let's get some legal representation. It will cost you something, but it'll also show you and tell this company that you are very serious.
0: So how does that work? Would the attorney then tell her what her next steps would be? Or should she say, hi, I'm hiring an attorney. Do you know what her next
2: steps are? I think it could go either way. I think the question is how comfortable she feels negotiating this. It's an employment agreement. She's negotiating an employment agreement, but it seems to me that there's so many moving pieces with what she currently owns, what the company currently owns. All of those things need to be ironed out in terms of the pieces that have already been put in place. I don't feel qualified to make those judgment calls, But I think there are a lot of assets here. I'm not sure who owns them. And if this were me, I would probably say, look, it's really clear to me there are a lot of moving pieces here. I think we need an employment agreement. I'm gonna ask my attorney who does this all the time to step in and take care of this going forward because I wanna make sure that we've answered all the questions that we could answer ahead of time so that as we move forward with this great company that we're building, there's no confusion. I
0: love that. Beautifully said. It's hard. And please let us know what happens.
2: Yeah, it is really, really hard, but it's also why... I mean, Catherine, you and I've worked together for a really long time now, and I am guilty of sometimes giving away more than I should in terms of ideas and work product before there's a deal on the table. And I've had to learn over time to hold my horses. You know, I've had to learn over time to try to hold a few things back especially when you're dealing with people that you don't know particularly well. Right. Just to protect yourself. Right. It is such a catch-22, though, because if you don't
0: give any ideas, then they're not going to want to work with you. So there is that threshold of like, well, let me show you what I can do for you, but let me also not, you know, give away the whole game plan. Yeah, exactly.
2: But good luck, yes. Let us know what happens. Let me know if you need my lawyer, and we can go from there.
0: Amazing. Our next question today comes to us from Nick. He writes, Hi, Gene. et al. I'm at a career transition point. I'm a 40-year-old guy. Yes, you have some male listeners. Living in Madison, Wisconsin. I've worked for universities for 17 years, and I might be going into the private sector for the very first time. For context, I lost my job due to COVID, and I've been having a hard time getting hired back at the university. I was making $85,000 before I lost my job, now, I'm trying to pivot fields within IT to cybersecurity. My best guess about a new starting salary would be 60 to $70,000. i am single and ready to mingle, and I have no kids. I also don't have any debt, and I rent my home. I have $20,000 left in an emergency fund after being unemployed. Assuming my expenses stay the same, I should be able to save about $1,500 a month between my emergency fund, my short-term savings, and retirement. Some background. I have 12 years in Wisconsin's state retirement system and 14 in Social Security. I have $386,000 in a combination of 401 As, 403 Bs, and a 457. My current allocation is 74% in equities, 10% in guaranteed annuities, 10% in real estate, 5% fixed income, and less than 1% in a social choice account. I have about 12,000 in a Fidelity Roth IRA from some consulting work I did previously. Ideally, I'd like to retire by 60 at the latest. So, the questions. Number 1, I know I need to rebalance about 15% out of equities. Where should I redistribute the 15%? Second question. Assuming I get a new job, A in the private sector, should I go with a target date fund or split it up between stocks and bonds in the 401k? Or B, if my new job is back at the university, they change their 403B to only Vanguard funds. Once again, should I go with target date fund or separate stock and bond funds? Last question, number three, should I contribute less to my 401k and contribute to the Roth? I would allocate it to a low or no cost index fund. Thank you
2: so much for your guidance. So a couple of things. First of all, we do know we have some guy listeners. And the reason that we know is because when they write us letters, they say things like, hey, I'm a guy, but will you answer my question anyway? So now you know, yes, we will answer your question anyway. And not just because... You live in Madison, Wisconsin, where I grew up and have a very fond spot in my heart for. My father was a beneficiary of that same Wisconsin retirement system. So it definitely held up for him and I'm sure that it will hold up for you. Couple of questions back to you and a couple of answers for you. First, You were making $85,000 before you lost your job. I understand that you're trying to pivot, but especially based on our conversation with Hannah, I don't think that you need to guess that your starting salary is going to come in significantly lower than where you left the workforce. I would be aiming to keep salary parity if at all possible because you've got skills Clearly, and cybersecurity is an incredibly hot field. We know that there are jobs out there in cybersecurity. So just don't sell yourself short. Second question, your current allocation is 74% in equities. You're a 40-year-old guy. I don't think you need to rebalance the whole 15% out of equities. I think you could rebalance less out of equities simply because you've got a long time in the workforce. You've got a long time until retirement. I don't think that you need to go all the way down to 60% equities. I think you could go to 65. You may even want to go to 70 and pare down from there. Assuming you get a new job, the big question about whether you should go with a target date fund or you should split between stocks and bonds yourself really has to do with how much rebalancing you are willing to do on your own. And here's the thing about rebalancing. We know that rebalancing once a year, twice a year makes sense because it brings your asset allocation back in line. We also know that many human beings, simply because they're human, say that they will rebalance and then just do it. Inertia gets in the way, other things get in the way, you just forget and all of a sudden years have gone by and you haven't rebalanced. So ask yourself who you are. Ask yourself, if you're one of those people who makes a notation on your calendar to rebalance, will you actually do it? If the answer is yes, then splitting the money into stocks and bonds yourself using index funds or ETFs is going to be less expensive than going the target date route. And finally, to your last question, should you contribute to a Roth? I would say sure. I think split the money up so that you are putting some into a Roth and some into the traditional 401k, 403b. Make sure that you grab all the matching dollars. But once those matching dollars have been grabbed, putting some money into the Roth is a good option. It just gives you additional flexibility down the road, particularly if paying the taxes now is not going to be a hardship for you. So that's where I stand. Say hi to Madison for me. And thanks so much for listening and for writing. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, which is sponsored by our new partner, Healthy Paws Pet Insurance, I wanted to start with a personal story. So many of you know that we recently brought home a puppy, Norman. Actually, we brought him home about a year ago. And even before he set his first paw into our apartment, I knew we had to look into pet insurance. Why? Well, my friends, Debbie and Mark, had just had a big issue. To make a long story as short as possible, their dog, Sadie, who is a cockapoo like Norman, happened upon a pack of sugarless gum, which she proceeded not to chew, but to eat, wrappers and all. And... A big gastrointestinal mess and xylitol poisoning ensued, which meant two three day stints in the hospital and a total bill of $5,428. But Debbie told me their insurer, Healthy Paws, paid 4,636 of it, no questions asked. Immediately, Healthy Paws went onto my short list of pet health insurance companies to choose from. But how do you take a step back and evaluate pet insurance policies from the get-go? Here's the rundown of all the steps that I took to make my final choice. First, you're gonna wanna check eligibility. Some companies have both minimum age requirements at enrollment and maximum ones, and you also want your pet to be healthy when you enroll. Next, take a look at coverage limits. Many insurers cap the amount they'll pay at anywhere from $2,500 a year and up. That wasn't enough for me. I actually wanted to get insured against severe illness or something like a cancer diagnosis that could cost 10,000 or more to treat. To that point, make sure you really understand what you're getting and what you're not. In general, pet insurance policies don't cover well visits, spaying, or neutering, or dental care. Lastly, price these policies out. I found most insurers have helpful websites that enable you to type in a few details about your new pet, which will result in a quick quote. You'll have to choose a deductible and a reimbursement rate, as you might expect. The higher your deductible and lower your reimbursement rate, the lower your monthly premium will be. Finally, if you're like me, you've got some friends who are pet owners too. Ask them if they have insurance, which company they use, and whether they're happy. That's how I heard about Healthy Paws. With Healthy Paws, you can use any licensed vet with no maximum limits on claim payouts and no per incident, annual, or lifetime caps, and they process most claims in a couple of days. Visit healthypawspetinsurance.com hermoney to get an instant quote and take the first step to protect your furry best friend. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Hannah Williams for making it a little easier for all of us to talk about salaries and to work together to get fair pay. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.